closing out 2023 on more than a test, we have the author, Peter Brown. I opened this episode by thanking him for being here because he is a hero in my house. If you've read Creepy Carrots, You Will Be My Friend, or the Wild Robot series, you know Peter Brown, and more than likely, he has changed your classroom, your home, possibly your life. And this conversation is no different. Peter Brown goes deep into how he became a children's book author, the things that he's working on, all of the process around uh, The Wild Robot and the third book that came out this year. And then he even gets us a little bit deep and tells us the books that bring him to tears when he spends time with them as a reader. We are so lucky to have him here. Thank you so much for being with us here on More Than a Test in 2023. Here's Peter Brown. Hey, Peter, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So um, I want to talk about your books, but I have to tell you a story from this morning because I have three-year-old twins in my house who, if you ask them what I do, they would say mommy takes meetings in her office. That's all they think I do. And they've really never shown any interest, except for today, I was pulling your books to put them in my office. And I was talking to my husband about you being here. And it was like, my son picked it up. He's like, the creepy carrots guy is coming to our house. And I was like, no, we're doing a meeting. And he's like, can I come? The very first time my children have ever been interested in anything I do was today because the creepy carrots guy is on our podcast. Um, you are. A <laughs> I'm, hero I'm flattered house. to hear that. That's great. <laughs> um, is creepy carrots the book that most kids know you for? I know the, the tiger one is big too. Is that what you think? Or is that what you talk about most? Well, at this point, the books I'm best known for are, is my Wild Robot series um, for slightly older readers, um, slightly older, older kids. But among my picture books, I would have to say the creepy series is definitely my best known. You know, um, I have done a ton of different picture books and we've even done we've done three creepy books. So probably among the three creepy books, Creepy Carrots is not the most uh, popular. There's creepy pair of underwear <laughs> and there's creepy crayon. And I think at this point, those two books are probably even more popular than creepy carrots, even though the whole thing started with creepy carrots. Well, I, we don't have the other two yet, but I will definitely get them. And I, but I don't know. I don't know if anything will ever eclipse creepy carrots for my son. He really, really loves it. I've read it a thousand times. Um, you mentioned the wild robot books and you had a new one of the series come out this year. Now wild robots is different from creepy carrots in that you wrote the words as well, right? You're the author and the illustrator. Yeah, well, that's true of most of my books. The creepy series okay. is kind of unusual. Um, in that case, the stories are written by Aaron Reynolds and illustrated by me. But for throughout most of my career, I've been writing and illustrating books myself, including this new Wild Robot. Well, it's not that new. This newer Wild Robot series. Um, and Wild Robot, you know, you and I connected earlier this year. We hosted an event with teachers because so many teachers came to us and said, this is the author I want to talk to. This is the series that matters so much to me. And when you read this book, even just like the introduction, I think, or your, your, not the introduction, the, the, the who you give the book to, I forget what that was mm. called, but um, the dedication, the, the dedication, thank you for helping me uh, to like the oceans of the future. Like it can, mm -hmm. you can feel yourself. Is that, is this like something you've wanted to do forever to write this book? And is, is this just so much of you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've wanted to write it forever, but as soon as I had the initial idea for a story about a robot learning to adapt and survive in the wilderness, um, I kind of knew there was a lot of really interesting subjects that I could explore with this character and this uh, scenario. Um, and so, and I realized looking back that it involves all of my favorite things to think about and to talk about, you know, nature and technology and relationships. I mean, those are, that's it for me. I love all of those things sort of equally. And of course, storytelling and uh, illustration and all that stuff. But um, 
but it seems like kind of the perfect um, story series for me in particular, you know, and, uh, and I was, when I first started writing the series, I wasn't sure if anybody <laughs> would care. Um, I, I thought maybe there was enough interesting stuff in there that other people would be uh, pretty interested also, but you know, you never know until you get it out there. So it's been, obviously it's been really gratifying to see the the response to these books. Okay. I feel like you just said something that's interesting to me and probably others. You said you're really passionate about nature and technology. And I would say most people would kind of be like, do those two things go together? Tell me about that. Why do you, why do you say those two things right after each other? Well, you wouldn't ordinarily connect those two things. And I think that's what makes these books interesting is that it's really a series of story, a big story about um, finding connections between technology and the natural world. And technology in this story is kind of a stand in for humanity and modernity and all these other things. But we're, we're seeing it through the eyes of this robotic character who kind of represents us and represents civilization. And, uh, and so it's, it's just been fascinating to see the uh, there's a pretty obvious differences, you know, between technology and nature, but there's a lot of surprising similarities. You know, the, the one that comes to mind first for me is like the idea of animal instincts. Animal instincts seem like this incredibly natural thing that most people can kind of wrap their heads around. You know, it's like animals are born and they just know how to do certain things. They know to run from danger. They know how to like live in groups. They know to search for food and to avoid foods that maybe taste bad. You're like there's all this stuff that's kind of built into it, basically every animal. And, and if you think about it, it's a little bit like animals actually are really predictable. You know, they do certain things at certain times of the day or certain times of the year, and we can predict what they're going to do. And in a way, their behavior you might describe as slightly robotic. <laughs> and so that got me thinking about how like animal instincts are a lot like a computer program or like a, maybe a robot's programming, how they're designed and built and they just know how to do certain things and they're predictable. And, you know, um, and so anyway, that kind of connection really fascinated me. And so then I just set about trying to find all these other connections between a, a robotic character and the natural world. And it's, it's just led to one interesting kind of discovery and, and discussion after another. I love that concept. I, it's something I've never really thought about, but um, I, we live out in, like in a farm area and every night at 10 o'clock, the coyotes howl. I, like, with, like, I know when it's time to go to bed because the coyotes are out, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like coyotes know how to coyote and robots know how to robot. It's so interesting. Okay, can yeah. you think of one more? I'm sorry, I'm so fascinated. Can you think of one hmm. more connection that you found that, that was really useful for your book or really interesting to you? Yeah, well, so the, the the robot in my character, her name is Roz, and she's programmed. She's kind of like a brand new computer. She she's she's this amazing piece of technology, but she doesn't have any like software installed or anything. She's so so when we meet her in the first book, she's sort of powering up for the first time in the wilderness, and and she's just sort of the basic factory issued robot without any bells and whistles or anything like that. So. Um, so her basic programming involves something that I call her survival instinct, which is basically she just wants to stay alive and stay functional. It's pretty simple. And so she avoids dangerous things and she she tries to gravitate towards safe places and, you know, kind of keep herself up and running. Well, that simple program is something that we can all kind of relate to. First of all, like we're all wanting to stay away from danger and move towards safety and take care of ourselves. Right. And, 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 but she goes further because in her kind of quest to survive, she sort of discovers that by being, um, that one of the best survival skills she learns is actually, um, kindness, how to be kind 
to others, even when they're not being kind to her. Uh, and because all the animals are pretty freaked out by her in the beginning of the story. But she realizes that they work together. They have their own kind of community that helps each other in different ways. And so she wants to become kind of part of that community because she knows that in the end, the animals, if she, if she really wins them over, the animals will look after her just like they look after each other. And so she sets about trying to win over the animals. And she does that by sort of relentlessly being generous and kind to them. And so, I don't know, there's just, it's just like, I don't know if that's exactly what you were looking for, but like, that's just the kind of scenario that makes sense once you think about it. And yet it's sort of also surprising at the same time how a robot could end up uh, mimicking these types of behaviors from all sorts of living creatures, you know? And how, yeah. how that could benefit, how that could benefit Roz directly and, and so clearly and, you know, uh, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I love just thinking about. I could I could ponder those types of ideas for the rest of my life. Maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I really wanted to move to your process because I have these really great comments from kids and I will in a second. But I have to ask you about how you're feeling about AI and chat GPT because it's so some of what you're describing is kind of the, you know, I work for an AI reading company, right? And this is how AI works is like the more the kids read with it, the more it learns, and the more it can understand what children are saying. And and so all of these things like it's it's the concept that you're kind of talking about with Roz kind of watching all of the animals and taking in the data and figuring out how do I interact. Right. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of controversy around AI, especially for illustrators. And, and <laughs> you know, like your images are being recreated and things like that based on your work and, and the work of many, many artists and illustrators. So what's your current feeling with AI and all the things that are happening? Are you, are you experimenting? Well, not so much. I'm not directly experimenting uh, with AI like you know, ChatGPT or MidJourney or any of the ones that are most kind of commonly talked about. Um, I'm curious about them, but you have to remember that for me, one of the real joys in life <laughs> is to spend my time doing this stuff. And so I don't necessarily want to hand things over to AI, even though it might, maybe, maybe I'll discover that it helps me a little bit with research or with, um, I don't know, planning or something like that. I, I might get there eventually, um, but but I really love the process of digging into these subjects and immersing myself in, in the, in the data reading and researching and, and then sort of processing myself. I mean, as I describe it, I sound like a computer could do this, but I don't want the computer to do this. Like I want the, I don't want the, I want the AI to do the stuff that people don't want to do, not the stuff that people do want to do. And a lot of people want to make art and a lot of people want to make stories. And so I'm hoping that we can land in this place where AI doesn't necessarily take those jobs away, but instead, maybe enhances them somehow. Um, but a lot of people are worried about this stuff, you know, and, and I think about it constantly. I'm reading books all the time on this stuff and, and blogs. And, you know, I follow a lot of people on social media who talk about this stuff and it is complicated for sure. And I have a lot of mixed feelings and nobody really knows exactly where this is all headed. But uh, I try to focus in the wild robot stories. I try to paint a picture of like the best case scenario, <laughs> you know, like how <laughs> AI and technology could really be amazing um, and not focus on, cause there's, you know, obviously this, we can imagine a lot of worst case scenarios and, and I don't really spend a whole lot of time going down that path in these books. I could, and I think about that stuff in my own time, but I don't really want to take readers to that place, you know, not with this series anyway. No, I, I think you've laid it out perfectly. All the ways that this can be really magical for kids is an understanding of our world and, and technology. Um, I do want to talk about, you said something about research and how the research is a great joy in your life. Um, and it's so funny because uh, we sent a survey. So we had we had 
50 some teachers bring their classes to this virtual event with you. We sent the teachers all surveys. We also sent the kids surveys about the experience of getting to hear from you. And we asked kids what they liked about your talk. And two things came up over and over again. The first was they loved that you said a chapter can be one or two sentences. <laughs> and then the other was that they loved that you said talked about research and how much research it takes to write these books. And it was so cool that kids kind of took both ends of like, it can be easy and really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the one of the tricks to writing children's books is to take stuff that's complicated and make it understandable to readers of all ages, like that sort of distillation of complex ideas and making them universally understood. That's no small thing. And it takes a lot of work. And so sometimes I'll do a lot of research to tell a really specific little part of a story. And I realize I can tell that little specific part of a story in perhaps a two sentence chapter, right? Like all this work. And then I realized, you know what, at the heart of it all, all I re really needed to say is this and this, and that's it. And then I can move on to the next thing. And so that's why some of my chapters are really short because sometimes I can say what I need to say in a very, you know, in just a sentence or two. It's fun too. I mean, you'd think like, don't get me wrong. I'm not spending weeks of my life researching only to write two sentences, but, um, but there, are, I, I will spend a lot of time thinking about how to communicate these ideas to kids. And sometimes every once in a while, I can say all I need to say in just a couple of sentences. So that can be pretty fun for me. And of course, the readers <laughs> get a kick out of that, too, because they can say that they finished a the whole chapter in, you know, 10 seconds. So one of the other things that happened after your talk, so you showed this screen of... Um you kind of outlining the chapters. You were like, These are, this is the list. I think it was something either 40 or 80 things that are going to happen in this book. Right. Um, and a kid sent us a picture of their own list. So they they saw that and they were like, oh, this is how you write a book. I'm going to go do it now. <laughs> and, and, and it was more than one child. And so I would love for you to kind of talk about that because you if this was your first time writing a chapter book, right? The first Wild Robot book was the first my first Robot, chapter yes. book. Yeah. Yeah. And this idea of like, you just went through and made a list. Can you tell me about like, where did you come up with that idea? Because it was the first time I'd heard it and I've talked to a lot of authors and it really touched a lot of kids. Well, you know, the funny thing is I, I studied illustration. I went to art school and studied illustration and making picture books seemed doable. It seemed like I could become a professional children's picture book author and illustrator, but, but writing a novel for kids even felt like kind of out of my comfort zone. But I had this story that I, I had to write, The Wild Robot and the whole world and the whole series. Um, so I just decided I was going to try to write a novel, but I'd never done it before. And I kept thinking, like, there's probably really good tricks and techniques that I would have learned had I studied writing in college or something like that. I mean, I took one or two creative writing classes, but nothing really serious. Not like my friends who have master's degrees in writing, you know. Um, so anyway, so there I was, I had this idea I was really excited about, and I was trying to figure out how to write a novel while I was trying to bring this story to life. And it was pretty overwhelming. And so I just did what came naturally to me, which was to break a big story down into little bite-sized pieces so that rather than focusing on the whole big story and possibly being overwhelmed by it all, I could just focus on one little nugget of an idea at a time. And as soon as I started doing that, it like, I could feel my stress level going down, you know, I could feel like, my creativity's ramping up. It just felt like I can forget all the other stuff. Yes, there's tricky things I'm gonna have to figure out later, but I'm not gonna worry about that now. Right now, I'm just gonna worry about this one little scene, this one little chapter and get it just right. And then I'll move on to the next one. And for me, this wouldn't work for everybody, but for me, that worked really well to kind of focus my attention on something small rather than the big, the bigger, big story. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of kids respond to that idea too, because they can feel overwhelmed when it comes to writing or anything, but 
I think writing in particular, writing a story or an essay or something can be overwhelming to some kids. So if they if they think about breaking it down into little bite-sized pieces, suddenly for a lot of them, it doesn't seem as overwhelming either. And I love that. I love that they're able to shift their own thinking about writing. Yeah, it was re- it was really neat to get them back. I sh- I'll send you some if you want them. Um, it was really neat to sure. like on their own. We're like, where does this go? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And look what I've done. It was it was really neat. Um, something else that came up. This is from the teachers. So uh, a lot of the teachers that decided to come are teachers who don't get to have authors at their schools very often for two reasons. Either they're very rural, they're like out in the middle of nowhere, Colorado or Wyoming, and so like authors aren't doing the eight hour drive from the airport. Or two, they're in urban settings and their schools just don't do that. Um, and so it was interesting to see so many teachers in these very totally different settings kind of say, we are so lucky we got to meet Peter Brown. We are so excited. Like they already read the books and things like that. Is this an experience that you're having that your books resonate with kids everywhere? Well, I mean, I don't know if I'd say everywhere, but it sure seems like if kids read the books, uh, you know, I, I don't meet many people who don't like them, <laughs> you know, uh, it seems like if kids actually pick it up and start reading it, they tend to get into it and then they tend to finish it and they tend to like it. And so that's really gratifying. And, and teachers, too, it's been really fun to see how teachers have incorporated these books into their own curricula, you know, and lesson plans. And, um, you know, I didn't set out to to, to like the story, I, I didn't want it to be like an educational book for kids. I, in fact, that was the last thing I wanted to do. I wanted to take them on a journey with this interesting character. And yes, they're watching Roz learn. And through Roz, I guess the kids are learning kind of vicariously, which is cool and great. But I didn't want to set like, I didn't sit down to write um, an educational book. But it's turned out to really fit in with a lot of classrooms, you know, a lot of teachers. In fact, I just learned a couple of weeks ago that the Australia Department of Education named it to part of their core curriculum. I don't know exactly what that means, but I do think it means a whole lot of Australian kids are going to be reading this book um, in in school, in the school setting, which, you know, of course, I'm thrilled about that. Um, And so, you know, I actually forgot what your question was. I just started (laughs) rambling. No, about how kids resonate. So it sounds like it, it... I think what you're saying is when teach, when kids get into it, they start reading it, they love it, but that a lot of this has been a teacher. And I think this is with our experience too, a teacher student connection and that ki- teachers are finding it and they're like, Oh my God, I needed someone to talk to my kids about technology or about nature or mm-hmm. about being a friend. I mean, this concept of being persistently kind is mm-hmm. incredibly valuable for teachers and kids. And then when we get it in the hands of students. We're actually seeing the powerful because the power, because it resonates with them really quickly, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the most satisfying things that's ever happened to me is, and this has happened a couple of times, actually, is I'll go to a bookstore event and somebody will come up to me and a teacher will come up to me and tell me how they read this book to their class every year. They've done it since the book came out. And every year when they finish the book, even though they've read it, you know, six or seven times now, um, they cry because the first book has kind of a sad ending. A lot of kids aren't used to a sad ending at at the very end of a book. Um, and they'll tell me that a lot of kids will start crying. The teacher will start crying. And so on top of all the other sort of science and technology and nature lessons woven into this story, they end up having these really meaningful kind of bonding experiences where they get emotional together. And then they talk about their emotions in class as well, which is just, I mean, an author couldn't ask for a better response, you know? And so when I hear those stories, I just think like, I just, I don't know. I, I, I had a lot of fun making these books and it, 
I had no idea that it was going to touch people in these kinds of ways, but it just feels like a whole other kind of teachable moment that you wouldn't expect. That's part of the experience and part of why I think teachers keep coming back to these books so much. That's really lovely. Okay. It makes me think of a couple of questions. One, have you read the books with your children? No. Well, my first kid is about a month away. I don't have any kids yet. Uh-huh. Oh, I, for some reason, I thought we were both have had small children. Okay, so you're no. well. Congratulations. Um, Thanks. Good luck. <laughs> as, <laughs> as a parent of three year old twins, it's going to be magical and crazy. Uh-huh. Okay, good. All right, okay. I'm preparing myself. But have you read them with anyone else? Like, have you no. had this experience at the end of a book? Oh, interesting. Okay. No, that is yeah, that's a good question. Actually, I've never read this. I've read the books, for, of course, but I haven't read them with anybody. I might have read a chapter here and there uh, with an audience, but never the whole thing. And so I've never had that journey that all these teachers are having with their classrooms, you know? And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, it's an interesting discovery right now I'm having right now to think that all these people are having experiences with a story that I've never had, not yet. And hopefully when my son is born and eventually I'll read this book with him and then I can maybe get a slightly better idea of what, what these classroom settings are like when they're reading these books together. Oh, wow. Um, well, okay. Let me tell you this, that I do know teachers who read this every year and I know about the, I and I have seen this just so you know, I have, I, it hasn't been my class. I was a principal, but I, I sat in a room while this happened. So I've seen it. If ever you want to have it in a classroom, let me know. I'll find you a teacher. We can schedule it out. <laughs> it, it will change you just so you know, like as someone yeah. who's had those goosebumps, it's amazing. So then let me ask you this. Can you think of a book that made you cry? Oh, wow. You mean like a kid's book from when I was young? Any book. I mean, we're talking about this experience that most children, this is for many children, this is one of those books that it's like the first time they cry with yeah. a book. And for me, it was um, Bridge to Terabithia was the first time I remember crying during a book. But yeah. I'm curious, can you? Well, I think for generations, that book was probably Charlotte's Web for people, you know, right. um, that I, I, I can't say with 100% certainty that I cried um, at the end or near the end of that story, but I know that I was very emotional. Um, I read a book when I was young, also called where the red fern grows, which was really popular back then. Do you remember that? Yeah. That's another tearjerker. So those are two that come to mind immediately as an adult. You know, I read books all the time. I cry (laughs) pretty regularly. I'm afraid to admit, but, um, you know, uh, I don't know. So anyway, so these days reading books and crying for me, is just kind of pretty normal. Um, I read a lot of in, a wide variety of books and including stuff that gets pretty heavy at times. And so uh, now it's not such a big deal. But I think back when I was a kid reading probably Charlotte's Web with the classroom and a lot of the kids getting upset and sad and sharing that moment was it was probably pretty meaningful. I wish I had a clearer memory of it, but uh, I'm quite sure that happened at some point. Um, our, at our company, every Friday, we do 10 questions with someone in our CT. And the last question is always, uh, one book everyone sh- should read. And our CTO always sa- said, uh, where the red friend grows. So that, I think you're right. This idea of, you know, that book that gets you, it sticks mm-hmm. with you for a long time. All right. I'm going to have to ask, tell me a recent book that's gotten you crying. <laughs> uh, let's see. Gosh. Um, I read Clara in the sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, you know, he's written a bunch of books that have been turned into movies, uh, Remains of the Day, and is, I don't know, I forget. There's a long list. I've read a few of them. But Claire and the Sun was really interesting because it's also about a robot main character um, or a robot. Yeah, one of the main characters. And and this child who has this really emotional relationship with a robot kind of caretaker. And um, 
Yeah, that one got me for sure. Uh, I remember my wife read it first and she was crying and then she was like, here, you need to read this book after me. And so then I read it and then I was crying a couple of days or weeks later. <laughs> and so, you know, she and I were both kind of softies like that, but, uh, yeah, it's satisfying. That's the thing is when I, whenever I'm reading a book and I start crying, I feel good in a weird way. It feels like, oh, how lucky am I to be having this sort of experience here? I am probably maybe by myself sitting in a chair, a thousands of miles away from the author who wrote this thing years ago. And through the power of words, here I am feeling emotions, possibly tearing up. It's just like, it, it seems impossible. And yet, you know, obviously that's, that's the magic of stories and, and books. And, um, and yeah, so it's, I love that experience. I do too. I, and I didn't know we were going here today, but I, today, but I think this has been really lovely. And I don't, I wouldn't say it softies. I think that it, there's something absolutely beautiful about being released to a book and willing to like take those characters in and, and, and cry for them. So I'm, I'm with you and I, I haven't read Claire in the sun, but I'm going to, and luckily I'm getting ready for a holiday break. So it's a good time for it. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, I'll try to move us in a different direction before the two of us are in tears. Because <laughs> uh, I want to talk a little bit about you because you are, like I said, a hero in my house and to so many students and teachers. Um, and you have, it's, it's, I was trying to write the list and I ran out of space on this little pad that I have of all the awards you've won. You've been Illustrator of the Year more than once. You have a Caldecott Honor, E.B. White Awards, um, Irma Black Awards. Golden. Do you have an award that is your favorite or a moment of getting an award that really sticks with you? Oh boy. Yeah. I mean, every award is amazing and, and crazy. It's sort of like, I don't know, you know, you, you try not to think about that stuff. Once you start this career, you realize that there's all these awards and you try not to worry about it. And maybe someday you'll get lucky and get one. And I've been lucky and I've gotten a few, um, you know, I More mean, I have few. to say the, the call to cut honor was probably the most special. It's, it's a big award and it was, um, not one I was expecting. <laughs> like there's this thing called Caldecott buzz, which is when it's sort of almost award season, people start talking in the, in the like book world, people start buzzing about which books they think are going to win the award, just like with the Oscars or whatever. Um, and there was no, Os there was no Caldecott buzz for creepy carrots at all. You know, it was like, I was happy with the book, but I, I wasn't thinking about awards for creepy carrots, a silly sort of film noir book for kids. Um, and then the phone rang one morning and it was a bunch of like giggling librarians on the other end. And, you know, they told me that creepy carrots had won a Caldecott honor. And I was shocked. I think my first response to them was like, are you sure? I'm pretty sure that's what I said. I said, are you sure? I'm talking to the committee of librarians who made the decision and I'm asking them if they're sure they want to give it to me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it was, so that was really fun and silly. And, you know, of course I was thrilled and, confused, <laughs> but grateful. So, um, so yeah, but they're all great. You know, um, I won a book award called the horn book, which is, which is given out by a, a journal called the horn book. Um, and it's kind of part of the Boston globe and it's another big award in kids books. And I won that for a book called Mr. Tiger goes wild, which is a picture book that I wrote and illustrated myself, which means a lot to me. I really love that story. And I was so excited to see it get some uh, you know, get some accolades was really great. That's awesome. That's great. I, I agree with the, the librarians on creepy carrots, the page as again, I read a lot of children with my kids, the page where the carrots celebrate, I think has got to be one of the greatest <laughs> images in children's books. So for oh, me, man. I'm right there with them. And I wish I could have been a part of the Caldecott buzz. That's really amazing. Um, let me ask you this. Is there 
a book of, as someone who has seen a lot of kids meet a lot of authors, I'm, kids always want to ask this question. So I have to ask, is there a book of yours that is your favorite? Man, I should have a good answer for that. I get asked that a lot. Um, I guess, you know, I, it's so hard because each of my books takes a long time. These things take like a picture books take like a year for me to make, which is a long time. I'm a little I'm slow, but still I invest a lot into each book. And so it's hard to pick one. You know, my first book was called Flight of the Dodo about a penguin and his flightless bird friends who build a hot air balloon to see what flight is all about. And like, that was the first book I ever got published. That was the first time I ever saw my own book in a bookstore. It was so exciting. And so that has a really special place in my heart. But, you know, The Wild Robot was my first novel. I don't know. I guess if I had to really choose just one, it would be The Wild Robot. Um, because it checks so many boxes and so many of my interests, I get to explore it with one one character and one story. But but my picture books are a lot of fun too. So I don't know. I guess the Wild Robot. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I don't have a better answer. It's funny because I love Wild Robot. My son loves Creepy Carrots, but I think it was You Will Be My Friend that was the first one that I discovered of yours. And that one meant a lot oh, nice. to me for a long time. And I read it to a lot of my classes. So, um, you know, I think oh, great. the collection yeah. is pretty inspiring. Um, it's interesting. So one of the things that you said a while ago was that you, you started doing picture books because it felt doable to you. Um, so I have to, I have to wonder, were you like an artist with different aspirations, but picture books felt doable or was this the path you were always on? Um, I always knew I wanted to make art. When I was a kid, I drew a lot. I loved using my imagination. And I, I realized as I was growing up that I, the things I would draw just for fun were characters and little stories. You know, I draw a scene with a bunch of characters and some sort of a setting. And I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I was beginning to tell stories with my art. And so by the time I finished high school, I knew I wanted to do some sort of art and something with stories. I thought maybe animation and I went to an art school out in Los Angeles so that I could be near all the big animation studios. And then, um, and then while I was there, I discovered children's books and realized that actually this was a better fit for me because whereas in animation, I would have to kind of climb the ladder and before I could tell my own stories, you know, um, yeah. it's a big operation and you can't just get a job at an animation studio and suddenly be creating your own movies. You have to like pay your dues. And I was a little too impatient to do that. But with a picture book, I could kind of be like the writer and the director and the lighting designer and the costume designer. I think of my books almost as if they're little animated movies. And so um, eventually I really realized that children's books were kind of the perfect medium for me and my particular interests. And once I had that sort of discovery when I was at art school and I took a class on children's books, I, I was no looking back. At that point, I, I still love animation. I watch a lot. I even worked in animation a little bit. But um, but for me, children's books was, as soon as I kind of had that discovery, I knew that was the perfect fit for me. It's so interesting you say this. I just read an article about a woman who worked on Wish, that she's somewhere like in the production of Wish and like the years that she spent first of all, just trying to get into Disney. And then second of all, climbing the ladder and just how hard it is. So everything you're saying sounds really true to, true to at least her experience. Let me ask you this. If, if, are you, do you have any hopes for the future to possibly do animation or create a movie? Or do you think children's books for life? Well, I don't know. I love movies. I mean, I, my wife, <clears throat> excuse me, my wife used to work a little bit in the movie business too. 
And we both, we just watch a lot of movies together. We think about them a lot. Uh, and, and these days there's a lot of great TV series and streaming series too, of course. So I wouldn't rule it out for sure. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's out of my control. <clears throat> Excuse me. In a lot of cases, it's out of my control. I need a studio to basically decide that they want to make a movie based on my book. You know, that's how it usually happens. And it just so happens that The Wild Robot is being turned into a movie um, by DreamWorks. So that's going to happen. That'll probably be out next year, although they haven't actually announced the release date yet. Um, so that's been going on for a couple of years now, which has been really exciting for me to see kind of come full circle and see something I created now being turned into an animated movie is um, obviously very exciting, but I'm not super involved. I'm not like, I'm not like uh, writing it. I'm not directing it. I'm not producing it or any of that stuff. I'm sort of consulting a little bit on the side, but that's about the extent of it. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't be upset if somewhere down the road, I got an opportunity to be a little more creatively involved in the creation of a movie or TV or streaming series based on my books. That would be really fun. Wow, that's such a great full circle that you start thought you'd start an animation, went to children's books, and now they're animating that. I didn't know that about Wild Robot, but I'm really excited for it to come out. That will be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stay tuned. Okay, let me ask you one more question about Wild Robot. Um, is it easier to write the first book or the second book in the series? Well, they were both hard. I would guess, I would say the second book was easier. The first book, I, the learning curve was so steep. I had so much to learn. Just, I had to learn how to tell a, a story, a longer story while I was developing this particular story you know it was it was like i was basically doing two jobs at the same time um which was a little overwhelming and which is why it took me so long i mean i i, I spent years just sort of playing around with the ideas for the wild robot and then i spent about about two years just working on that book and nothing else um for the second book which is called the wild robot escapes i probably spent almost two years writing and illustrating it, but not nearly as much time planning it ahead of time and all that, you know. Uh, so that was a little simpler, a little more eff efficient. <laughs> and then the third book, The Wild Robot Protects, took a little bit less time. I probably spent a year and a half or, you know, year and two thirds on the third book. So I'm getting a, slowly getting faster at this, but uh, <laughs> but I wish, I don't know how some people do it. Some people crank these, crank out beautiful novels every year. And it's just amazing to me. That is incredible. Um, let me ask you about your process. I mean, you, you make it sound like you keep saying how hard it is, right? Which I love and I think is really something meaningful to a lot of students and teachers. But I would bet that that means that there are a lot of things that have kind of ended up in the garbage can or at least, you know, somewhere else. Do you have an idea or something that you haven't like fully realized yet that you still think about all the time? Yes. Uh, I mean, I have books, entire books that um, haven't come into being and I think about sometimes I've scenes that didn't make it into the finished book. Like for example, in the second wild robot book, the wild robot escapes, um, we see Roz kind of dealing with civilization. And I had this idea for a scene where Roz would be, um, she's kind of sneaking through towns and cities at a certain point. And um, I had this scene where I thought it'd be really interesting if she were to find herself in a zoo at night talking with the animals. Cause in the first book she learns how to speak with animals. And that's one of her, I mean, she doesn't really have superpowers but that's as close as she gets is that being able to communicate with animals. She, by observing, she learned how to, she kind of decoded the animal language in the first book. So in the second book, she knows how to speak with animals. So she's speaking with farm animals and she's speaking with pets secretly cause she doesn't want the humans to know that she has this ability cause she worries they'd be upset about that. Anyway, I had this scene about this robot Roz in a zoo talking to zoo animals because I don't know about you, but I love the zoo 
but it, I have a lot of mixed feelings, you know, like when I right. go to a zoo, I'm so glad that there are professionals who are devoting their lives to caring for these animals and to conservation efforts and all that stuff and to research. But I'm not convinced all the animals really want to be there. And so it's kind of hard, right? I, I usually walk out of walk through a zoo with with a very mixed sense of feelings. It's there's happy feelings and there's sad feelings and there's everything in between. And so so I had this scene where Roz could talk to animals and, and the zoo animals and have all the conversations with them that I wish I could have in real life, you know. And so I, I wrote this whole scene. I love this scene. And she was talking to elephants and chimpanzees and she was talking to you know animals from all around the world and hearing their life stories and getting a sense of how they ended up there. And some of them were born there and didn't know anything else, of course. And, um, and it was just so fascinating me to think about these animals' points of view and their life stories. And I loved that scene, but it just didn't fit with the rest of the story, The Wild Robot Escapes. And so I had to cut the whole thing which is such a bummer, man. I, first of all, I spent a lot of work on it. And so that was weeks of my life out the door, but also it just felt like a magical scene and I wanted to make it work, but it just didn't work. And, you know, sometimes what, this is one of the lessons I talk to, to kids about. Sometimes you have to make really tough decisions where, you know, you have to get rid of stuff that you love. You can't, you might write a whole scene that you love and it just doesn't work and you got to just do the right thing and get rid of it and know when it's time to call it quits, you know? Uh, and that was a tough one for me. Yeah, that sounds, I, first of all, I want to read it. And second of all, that does sound tough. And I do think hard decisions is one of those things that you learn in life that they stick on you and with you forever. All right. I've got a couple of questions from kids that I want to ask before we get you out of here. Um, one uh, is if you weren't an author, what would you do with your life? Oh boy. You know, when I was in high school applying to colleges, I wanted to go to art school and I, I got into a good art school. So I went to a good art school and that's, that was great. But I had a backup plan because I wasn't convinced I was going to get into art school. The thing, I, the other thing I really loved was watching nature documentaries, you know, like David Attenborough movies about where they, these people go into, you know, the wildest places in the world with a camera and they do research and they're observing. Um, and I thought, you know, it would be pretty cool to be some sort of a naturalist or some sort of a zoologist or biologist where I could go into those places and and because I got so much, I spent so many hours watching those specials on TV. I was like, I would love to go to those places in real life. Um, it's a good thing I got into art school because it turns out that I get a lot of, I sunburn really easily and <laughs> mosquitoes love me. I don't think I would have survived some of those locations. I probably would have gotten malaria or some other, you know, mosquito borne illness and never made it out of there. So it's, it all worked out for the best. There you go. All right. Two more <laughs> questions from kids. Um, if... Uh, oh, have any of your books been rejected? And if so, what did you do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, in the beginning of my career, all my books were rejected. I submitted three or four stories that had what I call polite rejections. Um, the editor would explain to me that it's, I show a lot of promise. You know, they would say <laughs> things like, oh, you're very talented, but this isn't the right story for us. Here's what we don't feel like is working and please you know, keep us in mind when you submit new projects and stuff like that, you know, so they gave me a little something to work with and I would try to revise my stories, but more often than not, I would just try something altogether new. And, um, you know, these days I do a lot of revising and editing, but in the beginning of my career, it was a little bit more like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what stuck. And I just started throwing ideas out there and putting these ideas, throwing these ideas at publishers. And eventually I got them published, but it took a long time and it was hard and it was demoralizing. And there were times when I thought I was never going to get published, but I just kept going. And eventually I got my first book deal. 
Man, my life would not be complete without creepy carrots and <laughs> wild robots. So I'm so glad. Oh, um, okay. And then the best advice you have for a kid who wants to be a, an author or illustrator. Um, read books, read a lot of books. Um, I learned so much about who I want to be as an author and an illustrator by reading books and looking at other people's work. Um, I write really short chapters. Some authors write really long chapters. I always tell kids like, you might prefer one over the other. Think about that for a minute. Why is it that you like a short chapter? Why is it that some authors write long chapters? Um, what kind of author would you wanna be? Would you wanna be in the between maybe? Maybe you wanna write medium length chapters. Anyway, that's just an example of the way that you can start thinking for yourself based on what you're reading. You can, that can lead you to start asking yourself questions about the kind of author you wanna be and that's just one example. There's countless examples. I mean, everything from the word selection and whether you write rhyming or or not, you know, you go down the list. But whenever I'm stuck, I read books. It gets my creativity going again. And I end up learning something a little bit more about who I want to be as an author and an illustrator in the process. So that's my best advice. I think the line I'm going to take from this podcast is whenever I get stuck, I read books. Like that's going to be the mantra that I walk away from, which is really great. Thank you for that. All right. Sure. Well, we have five questions that we ask every guest. And so we're going to ask them of you. And just so you know, we host everyone from superintendents to ed tech uh, uh, entrepreneurs to authors, everybody, anything, anyone remotely reading related. And so um, just that that's the kind of field you're in. And so these are the only questions that everyone gets. And the first okay. one is the podcast is called More Than a Test. But everybody who hears that thinks that means something different. So when you heard more than a test, what did that mean to you? Uh, you know, I grew up thinking about testing a lot. I wasn't a great tester. And that was really frustrating because I felt like a smart kid who was bad at testing. And so when I heard more than a test, I thought maybe maybe this would sort of ex you kind of explore how life is about more than a test. Like one test right. isn't really determining of anybody's future. And maybe we overemphasize testing a little bit too much. That's kind of where my head went right away. That's really nice. I like it. Um, all right. A lit moment. And what we mean by that is a moment in your life of you and a book that either is your happy place or changed you or something, you know, that, that you remember. So a moment of you in a book. When I was in the seventh grade, I read the Hobbit for the first time by J.R.R. Tolkien. And I had spent a lot of time write, drawing, especially pictures of dragons and wizards and trolls and all that kind of thing. Um, but I, I never thought it could be taken so seriously in like a work of literature. And then I read The Hobbit, which was like this incredible story written with such beautiful language. And I was like, I didn't, I, it just blew my mind that somebody could write about those fantastical subjects um, with such like seriousness and such artistry. Um, and I remember that really blew my mind and made me want to read more books like that. I, of course, I went on to read the Lord of the Rings series and looking for other examples of really beautifully written fantasy and, and then eventually science fiction. So The Hobbit was a real turning point for me and opened my eyes to what books could be for sure. That's awesome. A piece of technology you love. <laughs> uh, <laughs> boy, my Wacom tablet. I use this tablet for drawing um, when I do, some of my illustrations are done by hand and, and a lot of time I'll do my sketching right in my computer using a tablet and a pen tool and um, I couldn't live without it. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, the best advice you've ever been given? Oh boy, best advice I've ever been. It can be good advice. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, uh, good advice. 
I'm really drawing a blank. Um, so my art teacher in high school told me to follow my interests because I was wavering on whether to apply to art school or not. I didn't think I was good enough. And he told me that if I love art, I have to apply to art school because you have to follow your heart. You have to do the things that make you happy to be a better person and help the rest of the world. And so um, I thought looking back, I didn't know it sounded a little cheesy, but looking back, I think he was totally right. That's awesome. And a book you think everyone should read? Well, for adults, um, maybe Sapiens. Um, I forget I the name of the author. It's a little bit complicated, um, but it's an incredible book about kind of the history of the world and the history of civilization and the history of Sapiens, humanity, basically. And boy, does it go into detail and it is riveting. I mean, it's long and it's dense, but if you have the patience, you're going to learn so much stuff and learn and think about so many new ideas that I could not recommend it highly enough. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for spending time with us today. Congratulations on your son and his arrival in about a month. I can't believe you made time for us. You're in the middle of a house remodel, released a book in September, and you have a dog and a new baby coming in a month. You are absolutely amazing. Thanks for spending time with us today. <laughs> oh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.